an amazing, amazing thing. We get to think about the faithfulness of God to us. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start a new book today. So we are starting Exodus, which is all the way back in the Old Testament, the second book of the Bible, not too hard to find. After Genesis comes Exodus. It's an interesting time right now. Our bodies in the society, everybody's kind of divided a bit. And the 20th anniversary of 9-11 just happened. Think about all that tragic death. And the football season is starting. Do those all go together somehow? I don't know. I was thinking about it. Vince Lombardi, you know, he said, uh, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Show me a good loser. I'll show you a loser. That's kind of our society, you know. We kind of think, hey, you know, I want to be on the winning team. I want to be the one who's on the right, right side, and the right side is the one that's going to win. And then you and I come to Christianity, and you're even here today, because we've been touched by something, the actual winning of Christ, which was what? He died. And we have this amazing promise that he's going to resurrect us from the dead. How wild is that? That for all intents and purposes, it looks like we're losing. And yet we have this promise that we just trust by faith. That he's going to give us life. And it's such a strong word of promise that we live like it's actually true. That that makes the team, right? And so so we break it in. And and sometimes as we come to Exodus today, I mean... I, 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 with Diane, think thinking through the, the anniversary of, of 9-11 where 2,600 people died in our country. Thinking about, man, that's, that's a terrible, terrible thing. I want to go get them. I want to be on the side that wins. I want to go bomb back. I want, man, because obviously we're God's country and whoever did that to us isn't. And I start to make lines like, like an NFL football team against someone else. I want to win the game. And I think the game is played out on the stage. And, and so Exodus is going to be really good for us. Because I want you to get pulled into the story of your actual life. The amazing story of God. That's for you. And it's underneath. It's, it's deeper. It's more amazing. It doesn't look like winning. But God's at work. In incredible ways. So that's Exodus. It's the second book of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the very beginning of our story. And there's a couple reasons more even to tackle this book right now. One is to encourage you about God and his deliverance. I don't know your life, but almost everyone I meet needs deliverance. You feel like, man, things are not going so well. And and where do I get my hope from? How do I know... Hey, Exodus shows amazing God of deliverance, and we've got a deliverer. I want you to see Jesus, our Savior, is presented not just in the New Testament, but the Old, to marvel again that we get to, not so much that we get to do stuff, but we get to be part of the story. <laughs> to have hope in the midst of difficulty. To pause before interpreting our situation because so often we just don't know, but there are things we do know. I know this. My God is for you. Look what he's done. 
can you take it in? So that's going to be Exodus, and we're going to start off with, with Exodus chapter 1. And this we're calling this names because the actual book of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible is, and these are the names. So this is the title of the book. It's also the start of the first verse. That's how they did it, is they did it that way. And, and what I want to do today is I want to start with, with the very, very first word. Because it helps us with what's going to happen in the story. So Exodus, you probably know Exodus. Exodus is about Exodus, right? Isn't it about like how God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt? It's a liberation story. But if you start with the beginning, it's a bit more. So start with me. Because the very first word in Exodus, it's not even in your text at least most of your text. I don't know if you look at your Bible and you see the first, here it is, Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. <laughs> I gave it away. I said it already, but there's this little word. There's a little word first that they just mostly leave out. It's the word and. Exodus starts with and. If you ever have a book and it starts with and, it means something came before, right? Something's already going on. It's and means it brings in everything that's happened. That's Exodus. And these are the names. So this book, it's intimately connected with the book that came before it. It's a piece of the story, and the story that's true. But, but if you don't see it as a step in the story, you might not really emphasize it correctly. What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. If, it, if I told you that John walked the dog, that's one of my favorite emphasis statements. John walked the dog. What am I emphasizing? You'd have no idea. John, not Mary. Did he walk a dog, not a cat? But if I said, hey, John walked the dog, and you know that John has never walked in his life, and then last week, all of a sudden, John got up out of his chair. And John walked the dog. Then you're like, oh, he can walk. And that context becomes something you actually understand what the actual story is about. That's happening here. It's a little bit like that. So walk with me for a minute and hear the story. It's not primarily a liberation story. It's there. But... But this liberation happens. It's not a story of breaking away from the world, though that happens. It's remarkable to see the story of your God. Do you want to know who he is? How he works? How he's thinking? And it's not like you think. It's not Vince Lombardi. Although he said some amazing stuff. So it starts in Genesis 1, right, with the Garden of Eden. You know that, and you know the story of the Garden of Eden. God made everything. He's the creator. And he made people and he put them in the garden. He said, hey, you can, you can have great time in this garden. Just don't eat that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, man, name the animals. Be fruitful and multiply. Actually, you gave him that instruction, right? Do you remember? I'll put it up. Genesis one twenty eight. God bless them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. This was called a creation mandate. The very beginning of Genesis, God talks to Adam and he says, hey, do this. Be fruitful and multiply. 
course, sin tempted them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to try and be like God instead of just living. They wanted to know themselves what was right and good and true and not, and shamed of how God was keeping them in the garden, so they hid. So God put them out of the garden. He, he, he promised them as he did that that they were becoming a, a seed. There's this little piece of, 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 of amazement. So they thought, they thought that seed would be their child, but then Cain killed his brother, right? And sin reigned, and people were and, and are evil on their own. So eventually God sent a flood. You know the flood, that's Noah. God saved Noah and his family in like two or seven of every animal, and they're floating in the water because he sent the flood down. That's Genesis. I want you to see God's instructions to Noah. Would you, would you look at it for a second? I don't know if you've thought about this. God blessed Noah and his fan sons. When the flood went away and God's talking to Noah and God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Boy, that sounds like something. Yeah, it does. It sounds like Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. He says to Noah now, the new creation that he's done, he says, go, 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 fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. The word there's really fun. It means swarm. <laughs> go be a swarm. <laughs> Thinking like bees flowing around, just tons of them. More people, still sinners, still against God. They build the tower to the heavens, the tower of Babel. And so God split them up in different languages and, and off they went. This is a big story of creation, right? The big story of a God who made people and allowed them to sin and leave him. And, 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 and then comes this really interesting piece in Genesis. And there's a shift from 11 to 12 when all of a sudden God picks one person. Think about that for a minute. He made everybody, every billionth person that ever lived, trillions, whoever. God picked one said, go on, leave your nowhereville that you're at, or the Chaldees or whatever, and come on over here because you're going to be my person. This is how God works. He doesn't just work in a community. He worked with an individual, right? He picked Abraham, and Abraham became Abraham. He was Abram at the time, and, and, and he took him to a place, not his natural home. He made promises to him that he'd be given a land and made a people, and his seed would bless the nations, and that's Genesis 12 to 17. It's amazing. And the rest of Genesis is about Abraham and his kids. First child wasn't the chosen child. That's Ishmael. Instead, it's the second child. Isaac, his name means laughter. And laughter, that's Isaac. He had two kids, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was the chosen one. He's the younger and he's a trickster and he's really amoral and he's always doing these crazy bad things. God had to wrestle with him and he crippled him and Changed his name to Israel, but that's his name, Israel, right? With somebody's name. And Jacob had 12 kids, but he kind of loved like the second youngest. It was, it's kind of wrong, you know. I mean, can I say that? As a dad, you need to love all your kids the same, but he really special loved that kid more than all the other kids. And the other kids knew it. So you got this awesome family dynamic in the Bible. This is the Bible. So wait, wait, isn't it about time and space? And all? No, it's about this one family and they're having bad, like bad Thanksgiving dinner. And you're like, whoa, this is like, this, is, this is just doesn't seem right. Yeah. The other kids are so jealous and angry at this dad who's favoring the one kid and giving him special robes and all this stuff that they want to kill him. 
In fact, they fake killing him, but they send the guy down to Egypt where he's going to be a slave, and the slave, his name's Joseph, and you know the last 13 chapters of Genesis are about that, about how jo- Joseph, a slave, rose up, still a slave, he never didn't, be- but he rose in the ranks and became the second kind of ruler over, over Egypt with Pharaoh, and everything God did with him is so amazing, but, but it's a story that's really random. You know it all. It seems normal to us because we know it. It's our Bible stories. It's our Sunday school stories. But they're not story. You're like, wow, this is how I would do it if I were God. Make him a slave. He goes to give him some dreams and he gets out and then he, his dreams are true because God gave them to him and then, and then God uses it to bring these brothers up. These brothers who wanted to kill him, by the way, God decides he's saving them. And so they're all going to move. So you get there in in Genesis 46. You get this. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob, firstborn. So it goes through, right? Now these are the... Wait a minute. Now these are the names. Yeah, that now is actually an and. That's exactly the same verse as starts Exodus. Five chapters later. That, that's our context. And, and these are the names. That's pretty amazing. The list of who went down in hope that God was rescuing them. And now we're going to pick up the exact same words. These are the people. I, I want you to see the people. We're going somewhere. Hang with me. This is the story. This is the Old Testament. You've got to have a flavor for a story and how God works. And, and it is about God, but, but it's about the people too, right? Because these are the names, the names of the people. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers. And all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. Okay, now you're ready with me because now you've seen the story. What did God say back in Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply. What did he say to Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. What does God actually do with Israel? Like 70 of them came down. Really, 66 is four of them already there. And the, the 70, but it's a 70 people. So he made sure you hear the word 70 because now they've grown to, dare I say, a swarm. Did they do this? Like, oh, what we need to do is take the creation mandate and do it. We need to get on this, be fruitful and multiply. No. This is God at work. Doing what? What he wants done. How do we know he wanted it done? Because that's what he told Adam. That's what he told Noah. And that is what is happening here. These are the names, are people, right, that God is saying, I, I, I want some. This is God the creator. He gave that mandate to Adam and Noah. He's fulfilling it with the people. Now he chose and they just do it, multiply and fill the land. And, and, and these folks 
you gotta know because we start to forget. These are folks who have no real knowledge of God. They're not Bible students, there's no Bible. They're not law followers, there's no law. Who do, what do we know most about them? They were the, 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 at least the patriarchs, they were the brothers that tried to kill Joseph. And God used it miraculously for his own purposes. It's fantastic. They're doing the things God wants, which is to get his people down to Egypt, where he's going to explode them. And they did it all with like their sinful behavior. They're losers. How come they're winning? That's the question, right? I think that's the question. Because this is a story of triumph, and it starts this way with people multiplying because of the command of God. And and they're his people, not by their great choices, but by his promise and his plan, so they do what he wants. I wonder if he does that with us. So this leads us to the main part of chapter one. You gotta know who are the opponents. That's the deal about winning and losing, right? Who's playing the game? Who are the teams? And I think I'm the team. But maybe even in Exodus, there might be a little difference that we're going to see as we go. Let's take a look. So it says, there arose, it says in verse 8, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, so it's, it's actually kind of a practical problem that Pharaoh's having. I mean, the kind of the relationship piece is gone because Joseph is dead and the Pharaoh's dead who Joseph was helping and the brothers are dead. Now it's just a ton of people and these ton of people are, are kind of taking, there's so many of them. Why are there so many of them again? Command of God. But there's so many, there's a practical problem that says, how do I keep them? Because if they, if they get mad at me, I mean, they're a political force now. They could, they could like join our enemies. They could take over Egypt. There, there's bad things that could happen to us. Pharaoh doesn't like it. It isn't, you see, that he hates the Israelites. It, it's that he's against God's command. And he doesn't think it's the best. He wants to manage it. In my knowledge, in my understanding, he might say having that many people who are not in my own nation, that's a problem. They might go fight with our enemies. They might escape the land. There are ways that might be bad for us. So how do you handle it? Well, there's three ways. Is I'm going to go ahead and handle this problem because I'm the authority and I know what's going on. So he has these three ways. to stop God's statement of what his people are going to do. Not Israelites versus Pharaoh. Oh no, they're just there. They're the, they're the, the, the stuff being fought over. It's Pharaoh versus God, right? This is important. Put that in your heart. We're going to walk through because this is so important in Exodus. It's Pharaoh versus God. It's not Pharaoh versus us. It's not us versus the world that's going on and hey, are the Israelites going to be faithful and are they going to stay faithful to God and, and get out? No, no, no. It's God against the world. So you guys already know who's going to win, right? I wonder who's going to win. 
No, you don't have to worry who's going to win. God's going to win. This is a story of amazing wonder about how God worked. Now I want to know, I know he's going to win because he's God. How is he going to win? What do I learn about my precious God? As Pharaoh comes up and says, man, I got to stop this. And I get Pharaoh. Maybe it's helpful to see how the world works too. Because he has some ideas about what he's going to do. It's logical. It's practical. It's amoral. Look what he does. So first, what he's going to try and do to keep them from multiplying is give them heavy burdens. Look at this. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Okay. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Ah, this isn't working. So, so, so the idea was if, if we really, if we make them so tired, they won't have time to like multiply. I think that's what it's saying, right? It's not saying I hate them. Let's make them slaves and make them labor. This is like, no, no, we got to stop them from getting so big. How do we do it? Maybe if we make them work really hard, they'll just fall over and sleep at night. And instead, what's your total backfire? All of a sudden, they're more and more and more. It's not working. What do we do? We'll double down. That's what we'll do. So he did it again. He says, okay. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Double down, right? What's the, what's the purpose? Now we're afraid because we try to stop it and it's going the wrong way, so we'll try it harder. Actually, this is one of the key verses if you look at the actual Hebrew because it uses the same word four times. And whenever you see that repetition of one word over and over and over, it's the word service. We try and get the world wants people to serve them. Serve to serve to serve to serve. They made the Israel serve with hard service in order to serve and serve all the time. And we use some synonyms because we don't like to repeat words like that. But the idea that the world has was if I could co-opt people to do what I want, and you see how it traces back to the very Garden of Eden. I know what's right and what's wrong. I have authority, and I will do it. It's against God, and God is the authority, and God's making them multiply. So it's not going to work. Like, you can prevent God. He says, be fruitful and multiply, and there goes creation. And the ruler says, don't, I don't like that. Let's stop it by introducing suffering and pain and oppression and slavery. Doesn't stop God, but his people are suffering, sure. Well, let's be a bit more direct. Says the world, look what Pharaoh does. Then... The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Shifra means beautiful. Pua, I don't know. He talks a bit, he brings him in. And by the way, this is Pharaoh. Now he's the mighty ruler of the whole nation. He's over everybody. And he's bringing in these two midwives. These two midwives would be nobodies. Why do I know they're nobodies? Because midwives were like that then. They had no families. They had nothing. If you didn't have a family in that time, you basically were just a, an actual person who was serving. So it's like people are serving, bring in the servant. I want to talk to them and tell them what to do because I can. 
So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, he says, you know, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. One of the few times in history where it's better to be a gal in our world, right? So that's interesting. He thinks he can. Now we know that's a problem. We know he's against God. We know he's doing, going against God's only real command that he's given to people, which is don't murder. He gave it to Noah. He didn't want Cain to murder his brother. Murder's been bad. They don't necessarily have the Ten Commandments, but they know murder's bad. But it doesn't matter. I have authority, the king says. This is a problem. There's too many of them. I'm going to got to control it. So he gives them that. But the midwives, these servants, these nobodies, feared God. They didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? They knew it was wrong. If you're God, it's so cool. We're just told that. We don't know their story. We know they're nobodies. And they're interacting with the king of Egypt, and here's their testimony. And, and, and then they say to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. That's interesting. Pharaoh, they're just so fast. They give birth with just speed. We try and get there in time, but we can't get there in time because they've already given birth because they're so fast on the delivery. That's what they say, right? That's their actual thing they say. We try and get there in time so we can do our job and kill them all, but we just can't get there in time because they're vigorous. They're speedy. <laughs> I love it. Thwarted. By who? By the midwives. This is so cool. The, the Pharaoh says, I know what to do. I'm, I'm going to impose this. I'm going to impose the regulation. I'm going to do it wrong. And the midwife is like, oh, well, uh, we couldn't make it. It might have even been sometimes true. But the reason they're doing it is to say, this is wrong. And they stand up to Pharaoh. I know that because of what the text says, we're just told God dealt with the midwives. The first appearance of God, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Pharaoh did not stop them from continuing to multiply. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Isn't that amazing? So the very thing Pharaoh's trying to stop, which is more people, here's the midwives and God blesses them with what? People, families. God's at work. Nobody stops him. And he uses nobody. He uses the lowest of the low. And he blesses them. You start to see a picture of God and he has no respect for this authority. None. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the last thing Pharaoh does. Instead of trying to work with the midwives and push his power on little people, now he appeals to his people. Kill them. We have to wait till next week to see how that really works out because it works out in God's way. Really interestingly, think Moses. But I want to point out this. There is no question that Hebrew babies died. Where did they die? In the waters of the Nile. In the water. Don't miss this. It's going to come up all the time in Exodus. When the river runs red with blood. 
It's going to come up where God's people get, by the power of God, delivered out of the world, out through the Red Sea. And then here come the males of Egypt, the army. And what happens to them? Drowned in water in the Red Sea. We're not playing games when we start talking about reality and God. And that's what we're talking about today. This is God. The world is against God. You're just in the way. The world's against thinking of you as, 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 as something that is valued by God, loved by God, and, and us submitting to God. This is about, hey, who God is. And God won't be stopped. He can't be stopped. You won't stop him. He just won't do things like you think he will. Because I think what should have happened with all of this is, is, is God should have liked, never allowed any babies to perish. God should have never allowed any suffering to happen. And yet somehow in God's economy, there's actually a bigger story. You know what the story is, right? God's preserving a people because out of this people will come a particular person. You know him, his name's Jesus. This is God's plan to preserve and make a people so that Jesus would come out and save the entire world even and including the people who haven't loved God. Because I'll tell you what, these Israelites we've seen as we started the story, they don't love God. God's just using them. The book of Exodus is going to not simply be a story of deliverance from slavery and oppression. It's true, it, it is, but it's a deeper and richer than we can imagine about a behind-the-scenes God who doesn't look like he's doing anything. Not so far, but the people are doing just what he wants. They're multiplying, and the world can't stop him, but it wants to. It doesn't make sense to them. They're going to take things they don't understand because they they think they do understand. So we start to know that. God doesn't act right away to stop suffering, does he? It seems wrong to me, logically, but the story's about him. And it's somewhat the same for us today. And we'll stop with this. Jesus said, didn't he? He said that, and said it in John 16. Here's Jesus. I said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. These are words of truth to you, even though it doesn't seem like it. Even when a terrorist bombing happens. Even when your life isn't going, what you should be and people are, seem to be oppressing you, God's got it. He's not stopped or thwarted by anyone. And primarily, though, we know the way he has it is that he took my sin on the cross and forgives me and forgives you. Because you're part of the world. We draw the long lines wrong. We're, we actually draw the lines and we, some of the world over here and some of the world over there and we fight each other. Instead, it's like, man, trusting Jesus is all there is. And he promises not that he'll build us great lives, but that he'll resurrect us from the dead. He's gonna do it, you know. It's real. God isn't just after freeing his people. He's growing them in this text. He's creating his people. And then you know what's going to happen in Exodus? It's not just about him getting them. He will dwell with them. 
Exodus is going to start with the Exodus. That's the first 13, 14 chapters. Then they're going to go to the sort of that law and how he's going to do. God's going to say, hey, you need to act this way to show people that you're different. And then he's going to go to the last 10 chapters, how you're going to build a place. So I'm going to be with you. And we know that Jesus built that place for us. He's preparing a place now. And he says, I'll be with you forever. And oh, he will take our sinful flesh and we die. And we will rise again in him. This is the most wonderful news you could ever have. This, John writes, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world. Trusting him. Our faith. And this is what we do today as we trust Jesus. God is at work. That's what we see sometimes and what we don't see other times. But we, by trust, by faith, know that it's true. Names. That's why I know it's true. He did this. This is Exodus 1. The names. When God took a people who were not a people and they're actually sinners and he decides, I'm going to just bless you and multiply you and you'll fulfill the commands I want you to and then I will take you because it's about me and I overcome the world. Will you trust me? We'll get to see lots of it. It's pretty cool. Exodus will be fun. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you that you've taken us nobodies and made us a people. Thank you that over and over you show that you conquer the world in in ways that are hidden and unknown and deeper than we know. And Father, I pray for us gathered as we start to look into Exodus and see your amazing deliverance and the amazing things that you do, that we might marvel at you, that we might be encouraged that you have us. And Lord... We know you do. It's in your name. Amen.